0: The end of this first section. So we pass the outlines out. I think I should have enough. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching a little bit of the Masters yesterday, and uh, my favorite time of year, one of my favorite times of <laughs> year. I love watching the Masters. And Solomeme, Gospel of John, talks a lot about the new creation. Do you have any? wonder what the new creation is going to look like. Just look at August National. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of flavor. So Love it. So, um, but that is what John is looking forward to, and that is what Christ has come to accomplish. Um, so this morning we come to to John 12, and uh, we're going to be concluding uh, John 12. And not only are we concluding John 12, we're concluding the first major section In the gospel of John Uh, it's called the book of signs it is the public ministry of Christ and it's over uh, this morning it comes to an end in John 12 and then the next time we come together John 13 in the book of glory uh, second half of, of John so this is the public ministry of Christ and it's been laced with not only his signs and teaching but also unbelief growing hostility of the people toward him this morning is also what, Palm Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, right? So it's appropriate that we're in this chapter this morning, because these events most likely took place on the same day as his triumphal entry. Uh, if not, then maybe the day the, the day after. Um, it's how this chapter began. He he comes to Bethany, then goes to Jerusalem the next day on Sunday, and he presents himself as Messiah. He's hailed by the crowds, welcomed. Um, as the messianic king, they wave palm branches. They want him to be their political and military messiah, and he accepts the title messiah. But he also does something unique. What does he do? He rides in on a on a donkey, not on a war horse. He comes in, say "I am the messiah." A donkey was a royal animal. It was an animal of peace. And he comes in, saying, "I am messiah, but I'm coming. My coming's going to be in a different way than what you expect." Um, He's come to conquer not through warfare, but through depending on his father. He's come to conquer uh, not the foe of Rome, but the foe of sin and Satan. And he's come to satisfy not the cravings of the crowd, but to satisfy almighty divine wrath in the place of his people. Um, And he's come to draw all kinds of people to himself, Jews and Greeks. This uh, passage brings us to these greeks that come to seek out jesus and he he says now the son of man is glorified as if to say i've come to be seen by jews and greeks but i've come to be seen in the glory of my cross what i am come to to accomplish after that he goes into giving us the um, the description of not only what he's going to accomplish what it means for disciples Um, his death is not only unique it's also a model um, for us to follow, all those who would be his disciples must also hate their lives in this world and not love their lives, even to the point of death and following, following Christ on the Calvary road. And the section ends with Christ, in verse 36, retreating from the people. He hides himself. His ministry is done. It, it concludes with just mass rejection on every side um, of the people. Unbelief. Um, they misunderstand him over and over again and the misunderstanding is culpable that means it's punishable it's responsible because it's coming out of a heart of unbelief Um, John began the gospel by saying light has come into the world and what happened his own did not receive him, why? light comes into darkness and the darkness did not receive him, that's exactly what happens how the gospel this section concludes now we must remember that John is writing for a specific group of people he's most likely writing to Jews and he's most likely likely writing for the purpose of evangelism he wants to share the gospel with these Jewish people to call them to faith in Christ as Messiah Um, but if that's John's purpose then now we have a major question that needs to be answered, which I think is what John wants to answer this morning. It's ringing in everybody's ears at this point. It's this. If Jesus really were the Messiah, then why didn't more people believe in him? How can you, John, expect us to believe Jesus, whom we have never seen, is Messiah, while people who saw him rejected him. If he is Messiah, then why didn't more of the authorities believe in him? If he really is Messiah, then how could his ministry have been such a failure, John? That's a massive question that has to be answered, and that's how he concludes this section. So this morning, we're going to be in the final verses, chapter 12, verses 37 through fifty in which we're told that Jesus' ministry concludes. And it concludes with two explanations about the unbelief of the people. So look at verse 37. It says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Notice it highlights the quantity of the signs, so many signs, and the location of the signs. They were done before them see that it heightens their accountability John's astonished at the clarity of the signs the amount of signs and then the unbelief in the face of all of this by way of review what was the purpose of signs in John You remember we've said it many times there were a number of things the signs were meant to do the deity of Christ okay so they highlighted the deity of Christ good Okay, his authority. Good. Um, I think the way we put it is highlights his authority by calling them to pay attention to his words. It highlighted that you're dealing with no mere mortal here. He's not a mere man. Listen to him. Pay attention to him, right? Good. What else? What did the signs do? What was their purpose? Remember, they were not just great miraculous acts. They were that. They were something else, right? They were very what? They were very symbolic. Remember, every one of Christ's signs is meant to symbolize something that he's come to accomplish in his ministry, to illustrate the eternal life he's come to bring or the work that he's come to accomplish. And he always teaches in connection with his signs to call people to know what his signs are meaning, what they're teaching. What were some of the wrong responses to the signs in the Gospel of John up to this point? So you've seen six messianic signs We've seen a number of wrong responses to the signs. What were they? Yeah. Um uh, six. They just wanted more bread. Good. Yes. They just wanted the physical reality of the sign. I guess whatever they could get out of it. Yep. Excellent. So they missed that what those the sign was illustrating was the spiritual life Christ has come to bring and it's just that earthly mindedness we talked about. They just want their bellies to be filled, right? They were blinded to their spiritual need. Um, very good. We see that all over the place. They want more and more of the miraculous to satisfy the earthly cravings. Good. What else? What were some other wrong responses to science? I think like hardening, maybe hardening the Pharisees. Yeah. It should have been like a softening realization and mm-hmm. yet them the dark. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. We're going to see that this morning, especially. the hardening effect. Um, it's good. Especially was when the signs were connected with his teaching. Um, they didn't like what his teaching was, was saying about them. We're Jews. You know, that's exactly what we're hearing in Romans. Um, what do you mean we, we need life? We need to be born again. So good. So that's, so that's some of the wrong reasons, wrong responses towards the signs. They were either wanted more and had wrong faith in Christ, he's just a miracle provider, or they're offended and they reject him outright. But why did so many people, especially the Jews at that time, not believe in Jesus rightly? Why was this the response to his signs? How does this not discredit Jesus? And, uh, John's already given us a number of um, Examples and uh, explanations for why this doesn't, for the reasons of their unbelief. We're not going to review them all. It's basically in every single chapter he's giving you a reason. But this morning now he's gonna zoom out and he's gonna give us really the fundamental reason behind their unbelief. These are the overarching reasons for the unbelief. Look at verse 37 though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. John tells us that their unbelief was rooted in prophecy. That's why they didn't believe. It was rooted in prophecy. Look what it says. They did not believe in him, verse 38, so that that's a purpose clause. So that purpose, the purpose of their unbelief was to fulfill prophecy. So John says. Now, whose purpose is this? Was well, clearly not the people's purpose. They're not saying, "All right, we're going to disbelieve Christ because we just have to fulfill prophecy." Right? That's not what they're saying. Whose purpose is this unbelief? Well, clearly it is God's purpose. They did not believe because God purposed that they would not believe in fulfillment of his plan, which he prophesied in Isaiah. So man is completely responsible here, but God is also completely in control, and his plans are being carried out even by the sin and rejection of man but what was the prophecy that was being fulfilled by their unbelief and John gives us two specific ones here and they're both from Isaiah Um, so he's going to give us here the the content of Isaiah's prophecy just specifically what what was it, Look, look at verse 38, here it is they didn't believe so that God's purpose they would fulfill what Isaiah said and then he quotes Isaiah, you know where this is from? 53. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This verse tells us that their unbelief was to fulfill the promised reaction to the Isaiah 53 servant. So go back to Isaiah 53 with me, if you will. Hold your hand in John. We're going to be going back and forth between Isaiah and John a bunch this morning. Isaiah 53. You know Isaiah 53. Um, It's very significant. In Isaiah 53, the people reject the servant of the Lord because of his lowly origins. In um, his sufferings and his death, uh, verses one to three, um, like a root out of dry ground, he has no majesty, no comeliness, no beauty. Um, he's a man acquainted with grief, a man of a man of sorrows. Um, he was not the triumphant servant that they wanted. Right? They see no glory in him whatsoever. And so, John's point is to say that Jesus. Is the Isaiah 53 servant and as such he has come to die as a substitute for the people so we've already seen John explain this many times already but now he's saying that if Jesus is indeed the Isaiah 53 servant then the reaction of the people must be like those in Isaiah 53 1 right In other words, the unbelief of the people do not discredit Jesus from being Messiah, from being the Isaiah 53 servant. No, rather, should there had been no offense, should there had been no unbelief, then that would discredit Jesus. That's John's point. The point of Isaiah 53.1 was that it was in God's plan that his servant would accomplish the salvation of the people through rejection and through suffering, that the people would not see any glory, any human glory in him, but that the servant's glory would be on display in the very thing the people, that the people considered to be what disqualified him, his suffering. We're going to come back to this in, in a little bit when we talk about his glory. But for now, let's just say this. If, if this is who Jesus is, and that's what his glory consists in, then there must be Belief. it is what God promised and planned in connection with Messiah's coming and work but that's not all go back to John 12 but hold your hand in Isaiah we get a second prophecy from Isaiah in verses 33 through 40 sorry 39 through 40 he says therefore they could not believe for again Isaiah said he has blinded their eyes And harden their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. John tells us that their unbelief was due to God's judgment of hardening promised in Isaiah 6. So not only did their unbelief fulfill the expectation in Isaiah 53, but John says they were not able. You see that? See that there? They were not able to believe. Well, why? John says it's on account of this or because of this. Well, on account of what, John? Because of the words of Isaiah 6, which he quotes next. The people were unable to believe because of Isaiah 6, namely what God has done to them. So go back with me to Isaiah 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and look at verse 10. The Lord says to Isaiah, Make the heart of this people dull. The idea is fat. It's fat, it's dull, it's insensitive, it can't feel. And their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. That's God's purpose. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Is the account of Isaiah's commission. He's given a message to proclaim to Israel. It's a message of judgment, a message of a call to repentance. But through this message, God determined to harden his people. It would happen through the message. It was God's intention and purpose to cause their hearts to be dull, to be fat, unsensitive, and their eyes to be shut to what Isaiah is declaring. God blinded their eyes, and he did it through Isaiah's message. Well, why? Why would you do that? Look at the end of verse 10. So that they do not understand and repent and be healed and forgiven. God did it so they wouldn't repent and be forgiven. In other words, this is a form of judgment. God's judgment came on his people first, not in the outpouring of wrath, but in the judgment of hardening their hearts so that they would not respond to Isaiah's message by faith. That's no new truth. Um, Just think about where we have been in Romans chapter 1. Um, It's what God does to people who reject him. He hands them over to a futile mind, to more impurity. Um, In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that's sometimes what God determines the gospel to do, is to do a hardening work, Um, hands people over. His judgment's not only the final outleashing of wrath, it's also a work of hardening, the hearts of unbelievers so they would not understand his truth and repent of sin now to think clearly about this you need to be sure you understand that God doesn't ever harden the hearts of people who love him of people who trust him of people who truly depend on him it is a judgment which he does sometimes for people who've rejected him who don't love him, who don't tremble before his word. They're stubborn, which is the case of Israel here and the case in the New Testament. They're accountable for their unbelief. So it's not that they can throw up their hands and say, I'm not accountable for my unbelief. God hardened my heart. Oh, no, no. He's handing them over to their unbelief. He's giving them what what they wanted, in effect. God's not wrong to do this. In fact, God should do it for every one of us. The astonishing thing is not that God does this. The astonishing thing is that he had mercy on you and softened your heart so that you could hear and respond. We're God rejectors, and this is the appropriate judgment. But God does this in Isaiah 6 in fulfillment of his plan. He purposed to harden the people so that they would be judged. And John says that the people in Jesus' day were not able to believe Because God hardened their hearts in a form of judgment. And he tells us that ultimately Isaiah 6 prophesied not only about the people in Isaiah's day, but about the people in the day of Messiah. And in this way, the unbelief of the people did not discredit Jesus, right? It actually fulfilled the prophecy about his coming. John is not done. He wants to make sure we don't miss something just extraordinary about these two prophecies and how they connect with each other and apply to Jesus. And he does this by telling us now in verse 41 the reason for the prophecy. So hold your hand in Isaiah. Go back to John 12. The reason for the prophecy. Why did Isaiah prophesy, Isaiah 53:1. And why did Isaiah prophesy Isaiah six ten? Look at verse forty one. Isaiah said these things, both of these verses. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John says the reason Isaiah prophesied about the unbelief of the people and the rejection of the Messiah and the rejection of God in Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 was because he saw his glory. Now, what does that mean? Go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. What is the connection? Isaiah 6, verse 1. Isaiah 6, 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord Adonai, the sovereign God, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. You know the scene well. The temple's filled with his holiness, the angels are covering the face. Holy, holy, holy. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah saw Yahweh God in His glory, and that's why he prophesied Isaiah six ten. Okay, sees Him in His glory. Result, commission, prophesies Isaiah six ten. All right, go over to Isaiah fifty three. The servant song of Isaiah fifty three actually begins in Isaiah fifty two. Look at verse 13. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be what? High and lifted up. The exact same words as Isaiah 6. (coughs) It's exactly the same in Hebrew. And from this side of glory, here in Isaiah 52, Isaiah prophesied what he did in Isaiah 53 about the unbelief of the people. You see that? It's the same pattern in, in both of these texts. Now we need to ask two questions to get the force of what John is saying here. Number one, who is the his glory referring to? It said Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Who's the his? Well, in John 12, there is only one possible antecedent, and that is Jesus. It's the only other person John's been talking about in John 12. John says that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. Now, why is that significant? It is because the glory of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is, and the glory of Yahweh on his throne in Isaiah 6 is the glory of the same person. John says he saw his glory in both of these. See that? It's the same person. John links these passages together with that same high and lifted up. It's the same person. And John tells us that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory in Isaiah 6 when he saw Yahweh. God high and lifted up. And he saw Jesus' glory in Isaiah 52 to 53 when he saw the suffering servant high and lifted up. Jesus is Yahweh. And Yahweh became a man to be the suffering servant. It's amazing. Isaiah sees Jesus. In his pre incarnate glory in Isaiah 6. And then he sees Jesus in his incarnate glory in Isaiah 53. But that leads to the next question why? Why did seeing Christ in this glory result in Isaiah prophesying about his rejection and the unbelief of the people? That's what John said. Isaiah said these things, the rejection of the people, because he saw his glory. So what's the connection? I think we get a clue at Isaiah 53. So go there if you're if you're not there. We need to understand what's going on in Isaiah 53. Isaiah's writing and he's including himself among the the believing remnant of Israel. So look at verses 1-3. through 3. He's saying, who's believed what he's heard from us? Okay? Um. Later in verse 2, no majesty that we should look on him. No beauty that we should desire him. Um. The very end of verse 3, he is despised and we esteemed him not. See that? Isaiah is including himself in the believing remnant. And the believing remnant at first did not perceive any glory or majesty in the servant. He was despised. They didn't esteem him. They considered him to be one rejected by God. So even Isaiah is including himself among this remnant. But then this remnant came to a profound realization about this servant. They beheld his glory. It was a glory in his suffering. It was a glory in his marring and his rejection. The glory Isaiah and the believing remnant in this song perceive is the glory of the servant who was so marred beyond human semblance, but whose marring was in the place of the people. It's a substitute, bearing the sins of the nation as a perfect lamb, taking the judgment and crushing weight of divine wrath upon himself. That's the glory that Isaiah, the believing remnant, came to see. The glory of the servant who was willingly crushed for our iniquities, so that we should be healed and declared righteous, as we can never accomplish in ourselves. Isaiah, the believing remnant with him, have seen the glory of the servant, and then they proclaim him to the rest of the nation. So look at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? See that? Who's believed what he's heard from, from us, our report? They're proclaiming glory, which is no glory to the eyes of fallen man. No glory to those who do not know their condition. In other words, the glory of the servant is only perceived. You can only see the glory of Christ when what he accomplished as a substitute sacrifice is perceived. But until then, his mission will be seen as a failure, his lack of triumphalism as defeat, in his lowly origins and suffering disqualifying and Isaiah knows this and so in response to seeing this glory of the servant what does he prophesy no one has believed our report eyes of fallen man do not perceive this kind of glory glory of Christ is imperceptible to fallen man with man glorifying values instead of Godward values his glory is imperceptible to a man who are ignorant of their condition and their desperate need. But Isaiah saw it. Because he did, he knew the nation, by and large, would not believe. That's what John means. And I think it works the same way in Isaiah 6, right? How does Isaiah respond when he sees the Lord high lifted up? Holy, holy, holy. What does he do? How does he respond? Whoa, it's me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He knows his need and his need for atonement, right? But he's going to be now proclaiming this message of a holy God and what the nation desperately needs to a nation that's not seen his glory, doesn't know his holiness, doesn't know his sin. Their sin. That's why he prophesies what He saw the glory of the Lord. He knows God's glory, his holiness, and the glory of the servant. He knows how people will respond to that kind of glory. It's not the kind of glory that sinful men like. It doesn't exalt us. There's more. Um, The unbelief of the Jews was not only rooted in the the prophecy of Isaiah, It was rooted in something else. Look at verse 42. It was rooted in the Jews' love affair with the world. Go back to John 12. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved. See that? They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John gives us another important factor. That must be considered why people rejected Jesus. It's not because his claims were not credible. Even many of the Jewish leadership believed in him, but there were competing sinful desires that hindered them from confessing him. And John emphasizes two very important things in these verses. The first one it's an essential ingredient in true faith was lacking. What do you think that is? What's the true ingredient? What's the essential ingredient there? Confession. See that? They did not do what? Confess him. Even many believed, but it wasn't sufficient belief. Right? They didn't confess him. Um, (coughs) Aligning oneself publicly with Christ as his disciple, willing to bear the reproach that he endured. That's just what we saw earlier, right? In chapter 12, verse 25. A love for Christ and a fundamental preference away from this world and all that it has to offer such that one identifies with Christ. Listen to how significant John makes this in 1 John. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Because on every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. Whoever does not confess Jesus is not from God. Um, the context of 1 John, he's dealing with the content of their confession. These false teachers are confessing something heretical about the nature of Christ, but there's still this idea of a public identification with who Christ really was. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in in him. Their faith faith was insufficient because they did not publicly confess allegiance with Christ. That's one of the first things believers do, right? In baptism. That's what you do. I'm aligning myself with Christ. I'm publicly confessing him, and they don't do it. But why? That's the second thing John emphasizes here. It's an idolatrous, self-centered, man-centered lust that was dominating. Look again at verse forty-two. They didn't confess them because they feared the Pharisees, so they didn't get kicked out of the synagogue because they loved glory that comes from man more than glory that comes from from God. It's the underlying issue. If you remember way back to chapter five, remember. Chapter 5 through 12 is this other section in John. Chapter 5 ends with this diagnosis, right? And chapter 12 ends with this diagnosis. It's bookended this preference for the praises and glory of man more than from God. They're feared being kicked out of the synagogue and that had massive consequences. You're kicked out of Jewish life. The parents of blind man back in chapter 9, they were afraid of it. Jesus warns his disciples in chapter 16, you'll be kicked out of the synagogue. But John says it's not just the fear of that. There's something deeper. It is a love. It's a love affair with the praises of people. Glory. We should understand glory here in the sense of honor and of praise. They loved the glory, the praise, the honor they could get from people more than the glory and honor and praise they would get from God for confessing Christ as Messiah. That is the height of idolatry, right? It belittles God. It treats God and his opinions as even less significant than puny man. That's how significant you are, God. It belittles him that fallen mankind is preferred Over him. That's what's in their heart. These verses call us to test our hearts. John tells us that one of the greatest hindrances to following Christ is a love affair with the praises of people. You see it at work in your life? It's going to be there. You have indwelling sin even though you're a believer fight it? Where do you see it? How do you respond to it? Do I allow my obedience to Christ or my confession and identity with Christ to be limited by the praises of people? The call is that we would repent of it, recognize it, because disciples are driven by desire for praises from God. God will praise and honor those who follow Christ. And love Christ and result in eternal glory. So those are the reasons, John says. It doesn't discredit Christ at all that people disbelieved him. one, because the authorities, many believed, oh, but they had a love affair going on. Number two, it's God's plan. To fulfill prophecy. It's how God planned the rejection of his son to happen would be blind to his glory. We've got a few minutes left, and this whole section concludes in verses 40 through 50 with another uh, explanation. It's the fundamental reasons for the seriousness of unbelief. It's given, and now we pick up on the words of Christ again. Um, The first reason why unbelief is so serious is because what one does with Christ's person one does with the Father, because Christ was sent by the Father. Look at verse forty-four. Jesus cried out and said, "Whoever believes in me does not believe in me. The idea is doesn't ultimately believe, believe in me, but in the one who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Christ is inseparable from the Father. You can't claim to love and believe the Father like Jews and Muslims." do, and many nominal Christians do, and not love and believe in his Son. They're one. Christ so perfectly does and accomplishes all the Father's desires that to reject Christ is to reject the Father. That's why unbelief is serious. Number two is serious because what one does with Christ's words one does with the Father because Christ speaks the words of the Father. Look at verse 46. I've come into the world as light. Light usually happens through Christ's words. He reveals, he exposes. And that exposure, if believed, brings life. I've come as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have come not on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. These verses are dominated by words like word, words, speak, say. You see all those? Christ says the purpose of his coming was to be light into darkness. He didn't come to execute God's final judgment and sentence on the world. And nevertheless, his coming would bring a judgment with it. Right? It is a judgment on those who do not keep his words. They disregard his words. They respond to his words by retreating further into darkness and into judgment. Verses 44 to 45 emphasize the inseparability of Christ with the Father. To reject Christ, is to, to reject His words, is to reject Christ. Um, and to reject Christ is to reject the Father. There's an unbreakable chain there. Look at verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words. See how closely they're linked? You reject Christ's words, you reject Christ. If you reject Christ, you reject the the Father. There's an unbreakable chain here, he says. Number two, look at verse 50. That's why there's judgment. You reject my words, my teaching. You don't have Christ without his teaching. You reject the Father, but it's another reason that judgment is heightened with heightened? verse 50. I know that his commandment is eternal life. The words which Christ offers are eternal life. Those who reject Christ's words are rejecting God's greatest display of love. His greatest display of grace and an offer of life to the world. That's why unbelief is serious. And that's how John concludes the book of signs. Mass belief of the Jews, right and left. Fulfill prophecy, it doesn't discredit Christ. It exposes the love affair in man's hearts with the world. And it calls us to pay attention to the seriousness of, of unbelief. And as dark as that seems, there's hope. Christ said, When I am lifted up, I'll draw all people, to myself, not meaning every single individual. We talked about that last week. All kinds of people. Greeks, Jews. And he does it effectively through the cross. Again, you don't know who those are, whom God is hardening. You don't know who those are, whom God is softening. Your job is to do what? Proclaim Christ. In his glory. What glory? The glory of what he accomplished as the Isaiah 53 suffering servant. With that glory on display, and the holy spirit loves to open eyes to the glory of christ do that and it probably won't happen in your timing or your ways but be faithful let these truths affect the way you think about evangelism affect the way that you think about the condition of man that's how depraved we really are let these words comfort you and fill you with confidence in christ even more and, uh, be filled with gratitude to God for His mercy that He showed you. Questions? Comments? Rich passage for sure. Yeah. I was just going to ask about um, the juxtaposition between verse 47 and 48, where He says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not reject them. And then verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words. As a judge, is he speaking of in both instances of one who has hardened their heart? And if so, it seems like there are opposite there's an opposite recourse for for either person. So verse forty seven, a person hears the word and doesn't keep them. In verse forty eight, one rejects Christ and doesn't receive his words, right? So you're saying you think they're different people? No, I'm asking. Okay. Yeah. I would say it sounds like they're the same kind of people, and he's just turning the diamond around, showing you the different aspects of here. In one sense, his mission was for what? Not to bring judgment on the world, right? He came for the salvation of of the world, this world system. And just like we saw in John 3 and a number of places, the coming of light into the world, into darkness, for the life and the salvation of the world, inevitably brings a judgment with it. Because it exposes the condition of the world. Man heightens their guilt as they reject it, as they pull away from it. So I think that's what he's saying. I've come for the purpose of salvation salvation, but my coming necessarily brings with it a judgment. And it's gonna be in my word. What you do with my word is it exposes and it heightens your guilt as you respond to it. So that's what he means? Yeah. yeah. I just thought it was interesting in verse forty two. Uh, for the fear of the Pharisees they did not confess and then we go into 43 that for they love the glory that comes with man not the glory that comes with God just as a reminder that if we kind of build up a fear of man how in our sinful conditions and just the human nature of depravity the thing that you fear then becomes a the thing that you love and yeah. in this case is a terrible thing and then yet the fear of the Lord produces the love of the Lord Excellent. Um just, just a really good reminder right there. Yeah. Yep. It's really good. It's really good. Yep. Yeah. I do think it's a perfect passage for the as we get ready for Easter. Just to think of how merciful God toward me. On these things. It's, it's sweet. It's grace, grace. Glory of the and Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. let we pray. Love you, Father. Thank you for sending your Son into the world so that we should live free. Free love, and I ask that you would prepare our hearts for the, the service to come open our eyes fresh to know you, to love you, to follow Christ as disciples who only love Christ, who only love your praise, And we would grow and we would love your son, Lord. Thank you. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Bless them this week. Prepare our hearts to celebrate the resurrection next week. In Jesus' name.